Have you been reading up a little bit in the Psalms since we started last week? I kind of gave you an overview and broke down how the, the books of Psalms kind of fit together. I want to encourage you over these next, uh, well, however many weeks and months it takes us to fulfill this study. Uh, we won't do an exhaustive study of every single psalm, and 150 of them, that'd be 150 weeks, and we'd be the next three years doing that. But we will take our time and, and begin to go through this study in a way that, that really helps us to understand the book of Psalms as God's prayer book for his people, and to understand how we can incorporate it into our life, not just for reading, but truly for for praying, when you read the Psalms, I want to encourage you to read them slow, read them thoughtfully, read them deliberately, because it truly is a prayer. And you know, you just might find that your heart starts to sing. Isn't it something, these are, these are, these are God's songbook for his people. And we don't even know the tunes to the original songs. But there are some, there are some wonderful uh, musicians who have created music to them. One of the things I've learned, uh, it's kind of fun to do, you can actually go to YouTube and you can Google, well, it wouldn't be Google, it'd be YouTube, it, right? You can just search. You can search uh, different psalms and you can find them put to music. Oftentimes by choirs in England, some of the old chancel choirs places like Westminster Abbey and other places, and, and music is just heavenly. It, it, wouldn't you love to just worship with that every week? It's just beautiful. Uh, I'm, a big, I'm a big fan of choirs, and uh, they're, they're hard to find today, in today's churches, but I love them. And I love the sacred music put together uh, for worship that choirs can do. So uh, I want to begin this week, if you have your Bible, open it. And those of you who are studying online with us, just open your Bible to Psalm 1, and I'm going to speak to you a little bit about Psalm 1 and 2, mostly about Psalm 1, but I'm going to mention Psalm 2 because what we need to understand tonight is that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are, are particular psalms at the beginning, not by accident. It's not that these were just, oh, just somebody put them together. This is divine numbering. Psalm 1 and 2 many scholars would agree with me on this, that they are, uh, they are twin, I'm going to call them twin gateways to understanding the meaning of the Psalms, the book of Psalms. They each are like a, like a lens, if you will. Okay, like if you have, you have a pair of glasses like I do and you have two lenses, um, you know, both of your eyes are rarely the same. So one's a different lens than the other. And, and that's kind of what these are. I, 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 you can look through Psalm 1 and you kind of see, you can interpret the Psalms and their meaning. And I, I will tell you that it's, it's to interpret the godly life. Psalm 1 is to help us interpret everything that flows after it in 150 Psalms and looking for the righteousness of God, the godly life that he calls us to live. Psalm 2, the other lens that you're looking through, actually it teaches us to interpret the Psalms with the thought and the lens of God's kingdom. 
What is God's kingdom? What does God's kingdom look like? Who are, who's in God's kingdom and who isn't? And what does it look like to live in God's kingdom? So uh, that's kind of a, that's something very, very important for us to get at the beginning. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. I'll go a little more uh, into Psalm 1 tonight and Psalm 2 next week. But as we look at it here together, um, I want to begin by correcting myself from last week, okay? I I said something a little amiss, and so I want to correct myself. And and everyone was kind. Nobody called me on it. But but what I meant, and you might not have caught it, but what I meant to say, when I go back and listen to this, because I get ready for a podcast, for a podcast and to put them in together, I, I, uh, I have a program that I mix them together in, and I, I thought, you know, I didn't say that quite right. I was talking to you about the holy name of God, and we're going to talk about it more here tonight. And you remember I introduced you to the thought of, of the fact that the word Yahweh, as we would say it in English, is the holy name of God, okay? But that in, in uh, more later times, the word became Jehovah. And I was actually correct on some of that because I've I've studied that many, many times. What I misspoke on was when I said that it was always the holy name Yahweh that they used. Well, actually, in later uh, Old Testament times, it was neither. (laughs) Of course, Jehovah doesn't come along till the, you know, 7th, 8th, ninth century after Christ. But It was neither because what they used in scripture, in the singing of the Psalms, they would never say Yahweh. They would say Adonai. And I forgot to mention that last week. The holy name of God, remember I taught you that there was called the Tetragrammaton, four consonants. The Y, the H, the W, and the H again. Four consonants, Y, H, W, H. No vowels forms the Hebrew word Yahweh. Now, we don't know exactly how they pronounced it in Hebrew because by Jesus' time, biblical Hebrew was not spoken. I mentioned that last week. Some in worship, but the language of the people, because of the Babylonian captivity and the centuries of of intermixing with other cultures, the language of the people of God by the New Testament time, the everyday spoken language was Aramaic. Jesus spoke Aramaic. Now, we do know in the Greek, because 200, approximately 250 years before Christ, the Old Testament scriptures, the, the panoply of the Old Testament scriptures were written down, translated from what they knew and what they had by a group of 70 Jewish scholars, 250 BC, to form the first really written Bible. Does anybody know what that Bible is called? little extra credit question here for you. I don't know what I'll give you for extra credit, but I'll move you to the head of the class. Um, the, the, word, the word for that, tran- it's a translation of the Bible, okay? And it, it's really the first translation, 250 years before Christ. Of course, we're talking strictly Old Testament here. It's called the Septuagint. Have you heard of that word? The Septuagint, S-E-P. T-U-A-G-I-N-T, Septuagint, which in Greek means 70, okay? 70 Jewish scholars. Now, there's all kinds of, there's all kinds of legends around that they all went into different 
places and all came out with the exact same uh, wording and everything, but I, I, I don't believe that. that but the, that's not necessary to make it God's word. But what we want to learn is that is the earliest known extant translated Old Testament Bible there is, the Septuagint. Now, that is also the most quoted scripture reference in New Testament times. So when Jesus is quoting scripture, when the Apostle Paul is quoting scripture, he is, they are almost always quoting Septuagint. Okay? Now by Jesus' day, there were other canons of the Bible. Okay? We, we need to understand what the word canon means. The canon is, derives from a word for list. A, an official list of something is a canon. Okay, so the canon of the Septuagint had 49 to 51 books, depending on how it was split up and ordered, okay? By Jesus' day, there were other, there was an other canon that was known as the Hebrew canon, okay? The Septuagint was called the Greek canon, Somewhere, we don't know exactly when it was written down, but there seemed to be circulating in Jesus' day a Hebrew canon. The Hebrew canon had 39 books. Does that sound familiar? If you pick up our Old Testament in any Protestant Bible, it has 39 books. So where are the other seven or eight books? From the Septuagint. So that is why a Catholic Bible or perhaps an Orthodox Bible has a few extra Old Testament books. If you never knew the answer to why, that's where they come from. They come from the Septuagint. Now, it was not until the controversies of the 16th century, okay, which we would call the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther particularly. Uh, trying to change the canon of Scripture because he didn't like the, not only some in the Old Testament, Martin Luther had a problem with some in the New Testament too. He went to take out the book of James. <laughs> he had issues with that. Of course, a lot of his issues were around the thought of, of uh, he felt that some of the, the Old Testament works uh, l led to praying for the dead and uh, earning salvation. Uh, they don't, and I, that's a whole other class we could study sometime. Those scriptures do not teach that in a, in a dogmatic way. But yet there is this idea that, that grew up in the Protestant era that these books were somehow not to be revered as the same level as inspired canon of scripture. Okay, So that's when, because of that controversy, there was officially adopted a 39-book by Protestant reformers, a 39-book canon of the Old Testament. Prior to that, for 1,500 years, the Septuagint was what was used. Almost all Christians worshipped with the Septuagint, not the Hebrew canon. So it's fascinating. It's really a fascinating study through history. Now, here's the good news. There's absolutely nothing that would, require, that would, that would lead us astray or that we would miss the salvation of God or the, the sanctification of God or anything that we would call uh, Christological or dogmatic theology. There's nothing in those missing books that would cause us to say, oh, we missed the faith. 
It's just not there. Okay, so that's good. That's beautiful. So whether you want to read the old Septuagint or the newer Hebrew canon, I don't care. They're all good. And the fact is, here's an interesting tidbit. As long as we're learning, we might as well learn it all. No Protestant Bible was ever printed with, even though in the 16th century, the 1500s, they, those books were removed and set apart to a collection called the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha is what they became, which is a word that means hidden. They're just hidden books. We pulled them aside and hid them off in the back of the Bible or in between the two Testaments. That was in the 16th century. No Protestant Bible was ever printed without those books somewhere in it until the year 1881. Isn't that interesting? 1881, that's not that long ago when you think about it. Um, just a little beyond, you know, 130 years or 40 years, that's, that's not that long ago. So even for a couple of hundred years of the Protestant era, those books were still revered and used quite a bit. Um, and that means even in the original King James. So a reason I brought that up, I, brought, I wanted to take you down a little trail there because I want you to, to, to understand what's coming together here. In Scripture, what we're seeing in Psalm 1 and 2 is, is a way to look at the rest of Scripture and interpret it. Okay, we're, that's the, we're, we're, in other words, we're doing kind of an exegetical work. Exegetics is the word for trying to interpret what did the scriptures originally mean? How did they originally understand them? And so then when we take the original understanding and try to apply it to our lives today, the application of what scripture means, that is called hermeneutics. So we have exegetics and hermeneutics, okay? Hermeneutics, how does it apply to our lives today, is uh, something that can have some debate over, okay? Exegetics, there should be no debate. It meant what it meant. Now, we may not all agree on what it meant, but it still could only have one meaning. That, so now we can see why there are so many different churches in the world over different arguments, if we want to call them that, over that doesn't mean that, that means this. So that's an exegetical argument. Uh, hermeneutics, it, it, it can't. There are things cultural to the Bible that are not cultural to us today, that have nothing to do with sin, and that have nothing to do with uh, righteousness that we would say would not necessarily apply. So that's a hermeneutical thing, okay? Uh, what would be a good example of that? Could you give me an example? Anyone know any? Or if you're online, you could type it in. What would be an example of uh, a hermeneutical application that doesn't apply necessarily today? Cultural application. Yeah, cultural, I think about women's place. Okay, women's place in the world. Very good, very good. Once upon a time, even, they made women sit on separate sides of the church. Separate. Like in the uh, Islam, when they were talking women, they had a whole set. They would be like the fellowship Isn't that interesting? And yeah. And then they would have the main, beautiful sanctuary. Yeah. So there's all kinds of cultural things that may be different there. But the truths of God, the truths of the, the, the things that we would say are soteriological. Soter, so, soter is the Greek word for salvation, to be saved. So that the soteriological teachings of Scripture do not change. Now, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 give us beautiful opportunities to interpret Scripture. I mentioned that the word Adonai 
so that when you are reading an English printed Bible, you will rarely, if ever, see the word Yahweh. Okay? The King James Version had it in four times, only four times. Okay? And then it was uh, opted out. What you see instead, when we read through here, you will see many times, you see, look with me in Psalm 1, right there in verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. Okay, do you see the word Lord there in your English Bible? Those of you online, you can see that. You notice it's capital L and then a small, but yet still capitalized, O-R-D. It's not capital L and then small letter O-R-D. It's all caps with the O-R-D being reduced. That is a unique spelling so that you, the reader, we, the readers, when we read this can understand what they were trying to communicate was the holy name of God, Yahweh. Okay? But instead, if we were, if we were, if this was a temple service or synagogue service, excuse me, not a temple anymore, but if we were in a synagogue service in, in a Jewish congregation, they would read the word Adonai in Hebrew. A-D-O-N-A-I, Adonai, depending on your good Hebrew pronunciation, Adonai. And that means Lord. And this is in English spelled this particular way so that we can tell that there it is. Now, yes, please. Yes, they they will not. Most religious Jews, most certainly most Orthodox Jews, but even conservative Jews, they just they, the Orthodox won't even say it, not let alone spell it. Now, that really comes from the intertestamental times. This developed kind of two three hundred years before Jesus. If if we were talking about Moses and Joshua and all those guys back in the day, okay, they, they didn't have that rule. It really began later, after the captivities, after the temple was torn down. And so much of which will be, we, we will see as, as we'll start to interpret scripture here through the Psalms, so much of rabbinic tradition was added to the faith of the people of Israel. That they, um, and that is one of the rabbinic traditions that was added that we will not speak the holy name of God. We will not even spell it. So good call when you see that. The other thing you'll notice there is there is something called the the uh, it's called the Jewish Bible I think, and it has the Old and New Testament. I'm thinking that's the translation. I have one at home, the Jewish Bible, uh, and in it it uses the name Yahweh all through it. I mean, it's it was printed by Christians to give a more uh, Jewish flavor, understanding of the roots there. So there are Bibles where you will see the word Yahweh printed, but not very many. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? That kind of respect and awe for, uh, for the holy name of God. <clears throat> I, I'm not going to criticize them for it. I, I think it's pretty beautiful. I, I don't know that we have to be, excuse me while I drink here. I don't know that, that we have to be legalistic about it, okay? I really don't. Uh, but I do think 
the, the Lord's name is used in vain in an awful lot of ways. And some of that is just, not just in what we would call cursing, but for instance today, you know, something that's really popular in linguistics today, excuse me, is the initials OMG. You know, in texting, it became popular to just use uh, initials for things, kind of like the tetragrammaton, you know, no, no word spelled out, OMG, which can mean, if I'm sure in the secular context, people are thinking, oh my God. God, forgive me for even saying it. I feel weird saying it. How about, oh my gosh? How about, oh my goodness? Oh my, I mean, when I think it, when I read it, and somebody texts me, I just, I, I just go there. Oh my goodness. Oh my, you know, I, I think it's just, I think the Lord's name is used way too often in a flippant way, in an unholy way. So little, little things like that, you know, traditions, traditions, not all bad, you know, that's, that's important. So, um, so I'll move on from there. I just want to correct myself from last week. Adonai is the word that was most often used when they spoke and when they worshiped and when they sang the Psalms. Okay. So tonight, uh, as we continue on, uh, I, I also, I didn't give you all of this history. Boy, I'm giving you a lot of history tonight. I'm, I'm sorry. Um, but it was, I looked it up just to be sure, and it was really about the 1200s before the word Jehovah was actually used. And it was used by some monks and some written down things. And you can kind of see where they just, if you, if you could only see how Hebrew script is written and how when they, in the, between 6th century and then 10th century, Okay, so that, that's the period where there were Jewish monks, if you want to call them that. There were Jewish scholars that were devoted to the, the uh, teaching and the writing down and the translating of Scripture. And what they were doing was creating a Jewish Scripture written for, in Hebrew for the whole world, of the whole Jewish world. They were called the Masoretes. I mentioned them last week. The Masoretes were the ones who started taking the vowel pointing that had been developed over the history in the Jewish language uh, in the New Testament area they had, and beyond into the, the uh, Christian era, let's call it that. Um, they had developed vowel points with little script, little dots and little things above a letter, and that's to say you should use the ah sound or the o oh sound or different things. Now, in doing that, it's believed by most scholars that there were transcription errors that made it sound like, Jehovah, not Yahweh, and added that extra O in the middle. So, which is right? I'm going to go with Yahweh because we can go all the way back into antiquity. In here, even though we don't know how the Jews pronounced it, remember we don't have any audio recordings. We don't know how they pronounced their words, and the biblical language died out. We do have that Greek Septuagint, and what we find in the Greek Septuagint is that the Greeks pronounced it Yahweh. There you have it. So I think that's good, good enough for me. So let's look at a couple of, couple of things I want to teach you from uh, book one, Psalm one. This is a comparison of lifestyle. The psalmist is writing down, basically there are two ways to live in this world. You can live righteous or you can live wicked. But know this, there are consequences. 
to the living wicked in this world. And there are blessings to living righteous. So he begins with this Hebrew word. The first word of the book of Psalms is a Hebrew word, esher. In English, we would spell it E-S-H-E-R, esher, okay? Esher. And there's kind of an A sound to that E in, in the, uh, in the, in the uh, ancient language. So esher means, and it literally is a plural word. So what we want to hear in Psalm 1, verse 1, blessed is the man. We want to hear a plural. We, what we want to really hear is blessedness. Blessedness says, I mean, it's just blessings everywhere. The, it, it, is, it is the blessedness of plurality to live as the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So he's giving us a tripart uh, comparison there. And I, again, I just love how the scripture uses uh, trilogies sometimes. You know, it brings that Trinitarian mindset. Uh, the, the comparison of the wicked is called somebody who walks, somebody who stands, somebody who sits. So again, the idea is it doesn't matter what you're doing in life, going through life, walking around, sitting down, contemplating, or just uh, standing Thinking, well, you can use the word to stand who stands in the way of sinners. That's a unique phrase. To stand means to what? I'm going to... Okay, and think of one more application, if we could look it up in a dictionary. To take a stand. To mean something. Take a stand. Okay? We can, right away, I think of the old hymn, stand up, stand up for Jesus. Okay? Okay. Uh, but this is uh, so someone who walks in, in wicked ways, who takes a stand with sinners, okay? Or sits in the seat of scoffers, okay? Who hangs out, if you will. Sits is kind of like this hanging out, if you will, with people who are, are not just unchurched because, hey, we're supposed to be with the world and the unchurched, but scoffers. These are people who are anti-God. These are people who are hostile to God's way. And there's a difference between the people that are hostile to God and the people who are just unsaved. Big difference, okay? Jesus prays, Father, don't I pray that you keep them while they're in the world, but not of the world. So you see the comparison. I, I want to talk, too, about this plurality of blessings in Psalm 1. Uh, because it's for the man. Verse one says the man. Now, there are some modern translations of the Bible, and this is one of the few, there's a few things, I've looked at lots and lots of translations, and, and I know one of our most popular translations, certainly in, in a lot of American churches, and, and in the United Methodist Church, is the New Revised Standard Version. The New Revised Standard Version. NRSV, but the NRSV, I don't, I don't even know if there's one in here. I'm using the ESV right now, um, but the NRSV, I think those are RSVs, if I remember, and that the original RSV, uh, which I love. The, orig the original RSV is what I teach from when I do my in-depth Bible studies. Uh, you'll hear me reading it on my Thursday morning Bible study, but the, the NRSV, unless it's been changed back, I don't think it has, started to use the words they. 
Okay, blessed are they. Blessed are they who walk not in the counsel of the wicked. And they changed the changing of pronouns. And the reason they did it, I understand why they did it. They were trying to get away from, from uh, man. They were trying to be more inclusive of gender, women, and everything. And, but the, you create a problem when you do that sometimes, not always, sometimes. Because the problem that was created in this instance, that's the reason this was not a good, that was not a good move for this translation is because this is talking to us about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the man. He is the man. And we, whether we're male or female, are to be like that man. So. Did you pull up the NRSV? Those. Here are the those. Yeah, and again, their pronoun, they were trying to be very gentle. And there's places where that works in the Bible and there's places where it doesn't. You can actually change the meaning. So a generation of people teaching and reading in that particular version, if they don't understand how to teach it, it could be lost. The real meaning can be lost. So, and literally, I know people that have uh, younger generations that have read, never read the older versions and have looked at that and said that, what do you mean Psalm 1's about Jesus? I don't see Jesus in Psalm 1. Yeah, Jesus is all through the book of Psalms. One of the things we're going to be noticing as we study is how the book of Psalms reveals the person of Jesus Christ. And this is where it begins, right there with the person of Jesus Christ. So it continues on. He, in verse 3, so we set, he's setting up, the psalmist here is setting up the comparison. It's blessed to not be like those that are walking in the counsel of the wicked, standing with sinners, sitting with scoffers, but instead delighting in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. His law meaning God's law. Okay, there's that, that his, that uh, male pronoun there is for God the Father. Okay, the, the, uh, the God, Elohim from the beginning. Now it says here, that he, there, you, you cannot get away from that. Um, uh, he, and I think the newer, some of those newer versions will say they there. I think you looked that up, right, Sandra? Yeah, okay, they. they. So it really means he is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. We're, we're seeing the righteous one, the holy one, the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus, compared with the fallen one, the, those who live according to the flesh. And it says, the wicked are not so. They are like the chaff that the wind drives away. You know, chaff, that, that's an old-fashioned analogy. You know what that is, the old threshing floor. You know, I take the, the wheat and different things, and you just throw it up in the air with a threshing, and, and the chaff would flitter away in the wind, Right? And I'm not, I, it's dangerous when I start using agricultural analogies. <laughs> you can see the chaff blowing away in the combine. That's good. I like that. Because uh, so, it's real dangerous when I start talking about farming stuff because I'm, I'm not a farmer. <laughs> keep me straight. Do, do keep me straight. So, um, therefore, he says, therefore, in, in verse 5, therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. 
nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. What is he saying here? The psalmist is, he's saying the judgment in eternity. They may stand now, they may think they stand now, but the wicked will not stand in eternity. Neither will sinners be in the congregation of the righteous. What is the congregation of the righteous? That is heaven. That is the redeemed, okay? The people of God on into eternity. So in three sections here, he, in, in verses one and two, where the psalmist is teaching us what it means to be blessed, multiple blessings, and in verses three and four, we see a comparison of the, the blessed life. It's one that yields fruit, um, not one that just gets blown, its works get blown away. And then in verses five and six, we see uh, eternity. And verse six is very important because it says, for the Lord, for Adonai, okay, Yahweh, knows the way of the righteous. And I think it's important to just stop here. I'll kind of use some closing comments here. One of the things I want you to look for also as we study the book of Psalms together is the knowledge, the word knows, okay? Uh, and I didn't look it up in the Hebrew. I'm sorry, I don't have perfect recall in Hebrew. I know a lot more Greek words. But the Greek word for knowledge is, or to know is gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, gnosis. The G is silent. Gnosis. And knowledge is always in Scripture a very intimate thing. This is why in the, in the beginning it tells us about, uh, you know, Abraham knew his wife. And it talks about the intimacy and then they bore a child. The idea of our life being hidden in Christ. All through the New Testament, Paul, especially Paul and others too, but he especially talks a lot about knowing Christ. Peter does that. Oh, that you may, that you may know Christ. Uh, Paul in the Philippian letter talks about, oh, that I may know him in his sufferings and in the power of his resurrection. The intimate knowledge of knowing God. So wherever you see the scripture saying to know God or the Lord knows, we're talking about a very intimate relationship. So to be known by God is to be eternal, okay? Because eternal memory of God, this is why in the ancient churches they would pray, if you've ever heard it said, and the Eastern Christians still say this, they say, uh, uh, memory eternal. When, when somebody dies, may their memory be eternal. May their memory be eternal in, in the life of God because that means they live forever and ever. They're in God, okay? Um, <clears throat> there is uh, an old prayer also, eternal rest grant unto them, O Lord. This is, these are funeral prayers, if you will. Uh, but the idea of know that God knows is so important to us. He knows who's gonna perish. He knows who's gonna be with him. And uh, I think that's beautiful. Uh, we can take comfort in that. Uh, we can understand as we go through Psalm 2 next week now, we're going to look at, so Psalm 1, how do we live the godly life? Psalm 2, what is life in the kingdom like? Who is the king and what is life in the kingdom like? Because we're going to hear a lot about anger and wrath and things like that in Psalm 2. And it's important for us to, we're going to get to know God by, 
by uh, learning this through the book of Psalms. So I've gone a little longer than usual. Apologize for that. But thank you for being here to study with me and to pray with me tonight. And uh, let's continue to remind ourselves to keep all the things on our hearts, these prayer requests, and especially these prayer requests for healing. I'm really looking forward to Sunday morning. Sunday morning, August the 16th, the gospel is going to show us the instantaneous healing power of Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk about what that means. So I'm going to invite you to just be in prayer and believing and looking forward to Sunday morning. But let's close with a word of prayer tonight. Father God, thank you for knowing us in our days. Help us to know you in all of our days. And help us to live as scripture teaches in the way of him, Jesus Christ, the man of righteousness. Help us to be those who truly meditate on your laws day and night, on your relationship with us. So I ask this now in the strong name of Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen.